It's the end of a run, if you will. We're turning to James, the last two verses of James. We'll be going through these last two verses briefly this morning. I think I've got about a 40-minute sermon, so just very brief as we... Just kidding. Don't worry. (laughs) Some people clapping, some people groaning. (laughs) So, brothers and sisters, when I was um, in seminary, and, well, I mean, just entering the ministry, it's just so uh, daunting to to think about preaching on a variety of subjects. First of all, as a a pastor, I don't look forward to the first time I have to preach on tithing. I also don't ever really want to preach too much on Proverbs 31 for fear of getting that wrong. Uh, (laughs) But church discipline is one of those that that it's, it's a little daunting to talk about, but I hope we find today that church discipline is actually not this grim monster that everybody paints it as, but really a delightful tool that God has given to his church uh, for uh, the, the unity and the peace of his church. So let's look this morning at James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. James, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this sobering, Uh, passage this morning, we pray that we would see our uh, calling and our responsibility set out plainly before us. Lord, we pray that we would be convicted, that we would be encouraged, and that, Lord, we would serve you with our whole heart. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we have to ask, as we're coming to the end of this letter, why did James write this letter? Why did James specifically desire all of these different points to be made? I mean, you look at James, and it's a grab bag in a certain sense. There are all sorts of different things that he brings in. He talks about trials, really encouraging for believers who are going through the ringer. And then we remember in the middle of the book, he talks about the tongue and self-control. He talks about living out our profession of faith. James really has has dug down into the the Christian experience and the Christian life. And so we ask, why did he write this letter? Why was he so interested in saying all of these things to his audience and to us today? Well, as we look back on James, we notice that over and over he has encouraged the faithful and he's confronted the wayward. Now in this final address, in these final verses, he calls to the faithful to do something. He calls to the faithful to administer spiritual care. They're to care for those who are in error. Now this is not just a random thing he plugs into the end. He's like, well, I don't really know how to uh, finish this book. Maybe I should say uh, grace and peace to you, or maybe I should say, you know, God be with... No, I'm going to put in something about uh, turning a wayward sinner back. No, no, he's not just randomly chucking this in. No, in fact... The whole book has led up to this. The whole book of James is really one lead up to these final two verses. James, in this whole book, has been seeking to turn sinners from their error. He's been seeking to do church discipline. 
And so that really leads us into our theme this morning, that God calls his people to care spiritually for those wandering into sin. God calls us, we see James doing it throughout this whole book, and now we are supposed to take up this mantle and we are to care spiritually for those wandering into sin. So we're going to look at three different points this morning. First, we're going to talk about turning back the wanderer, and then we're going to look at a soul saved, and finally we're going to discuss what it means for sins to be covered. So first, turning back the wanderer, a soul saved, and then sins covered. Let's talk about the wanderer. The wanderer that James discusses as he brings this letter to a close is one that once stood firm in the faith. This is one who at least appeared to stand in the truth. Now we know folks like this, don't we? We know folks that for a long time were members of a church and they looked like card-carrying Christians. Then something happened, right? Perhaps these folks grew up with friends or or family members. Um, They were sometimes maybe even our church leaders. They appeared to be firm in the faith, strong in their Christian walk. And then, well, what happens? Well, they fall into temptation. Or they start to listen to strange teaching. Maybe they begin to make self-serving life choices that dishonor God and they hurt fellow Christians. At times like this, it's tempting to throw up your hands and just walk away and say, I I don't need this kind of stress in my life. I'm done. It's tempting to just say, I'm washing my hands of this person. Enough is enough. But that's not what James tells us we are to do. Instead, he lays out the proper route of admonition and restoration. The first part of this process that James lays out is aimed at all of us. We are supposed to notice When one of our fellow believers wanders from the truth. Now, I'm not advising nosiness. And I'm not here saying we should really have a gossip tree going. So that we can spot people who are a little bit off and then go after them. So if you find yourself gossiping, please stop. But at the same time, we should be aware of our brothers and sisters in this church. We should have our finger on the pulse. We should be watching and caring for those who are wandering from the truth. We should be on the lookout for those who have wandered from the truth and need to be gently restored. The main reason for this is because we all need Christian brothers and sisters to watch out for us. We are a family. We care for one another. As Christians, we are not immune to the temptations of our adversary, Satan. Matthew 24, 24 says this, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. We need to be on the lookout for our souls and the souls of our fellow believers. Brothers and sisters, let me just make this clear. It is not possible for the elect to be ripped from the hands of Christ. Look at John 10. John 10 says this very thing. John 10, 28 talks about the safety that Christian souls have in the hands of Christ our Savior. Unfortunately, the safety doesn't stop the devil. With hatred for Christ, he seeks to make those walking in truth wander into sin. When he does this, he seeks to dishonor Christ and he seeks to spoil the witness of God's people. So when James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's not just dealing with hypotheticals. He's 
pointing out a danger that we must all be aware of and on guard for. But look at the rest of this verse. He says, Brethren, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, and yes, we'll get to the rest of it in a second, but, but notice who he's speaking to. He's talking to the family of Christ, the people of God, those who have been adopted by God through the life-giving work of Jesus Christ. If they see a fellow believer start to wander from the truth, led astray by the wiles of Satan, they are to seek to turn that brother back. Now we're going to talk about this action of turning wanderers back to the truth in a second. But, but notice again who James calls to action. He says, someone. Someone. Now, one of the commentators pointed this out. I had to look it up to, because I've forgotten my fourth grade grammar. But this is an indefinite pronoun. And you say, what is an indefinite pronoun? This is, this is someone who is a someone. It's anyone. It's a certain one. It's anybody. He's not saying, okay, so pastors, this is just to you. He's saying this is to every believer who reads the book of James. Who understands that God is talking to them. I hope you see what I'm getting at here. In the Presbyterian church, we have a well-structured church government. Elders are set as shepherds over the sheep. And the people of God are to be cared for and protected by these under-shepherds. But this doesn't mean that members of Christ's body can sit on autopilot and just hope that the elders do a good job. No, we are to love one another by gently coming alongside one another with admonition and sometimes rebuke. James is not talking only to pastors or elders. He's talking to all believers. So if you read this and you say, well, that's not me. That's obviously not me. I don't feel qualified. I don't feel interested in looking out for my brothers and sisters and admonishing them when they fall into sin or when they wander from the truth. Brothers and sisters, think again. God's word is to you. If you say I'm not qualified, then I'd encourage you to study God's word. To get to know the God that you represent and you serve. So that you can vindicate his honor. You can protect the unity of the church. And you can seek to restore the wandering believer. We need to go a bit deeper into the believer's responsibility. To try to turn this wanderer back to the truth. This form of church discipline, it's practiced by all believers. In severe cases, it's pursued by the elders of God's church. It's not just a way to be a productive member of the church. It is, in fact, the duty of believers who want to serve God and vindicate the honor of Christ. We are to lovingly address the wandering brother with the truth of God's word. Why? Well, because God uses his word and his spirit to confront us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So as his transformed sons and daughters, as God's transformed sons and daughters, we shouldn't let dangerous currents sweep through our churches. We must not allow sinful temptations to lead members of Christ's body astray. To sit back and watch this happen would be to cheapen the grace that God poured out on us. He brought us from slavery in the kingdom of darkness into freedom. 
and His holy and beautiful bride, the church. So by defending the honor of Christ, by seeking to turn our wandering brother or sister from error, we serve the one who sacrificed Himself for us. We protect our own hearts as well and the hearts of other believers from being led astray. Now, one of the great commentators on on the book of James, a a fellow named Thomas Manton, says this. He really sums up the need uh, to, to exercise this caution and this care for one another. He says, Error is contagious and goes along with our natural thoughts wonderfully. Knowing what is in us, we can soon go wrong. No wrong idea can be suggested to us without its seeds being in our own souls. Friends, when we look and we see a brother or a sister wandering from the truth, then we just say, eh, it'll take care of itself. We're opening not just them up to serious repercussions. We are opening our own hearts up to deception. And as Manton points out, our hearts are primed explosives. We're still sinners. God saved us, sure, but we are still sinners. And our hearts are deceitful above all else. You might hear something new and say, well, that sounds good. We might wander right after that wandering brother. I think you guys have have heard, I'm sure, of lemmings. We don't have any lemmings around here, perhaps because we have so many cliffs. But lemmings are these little animals that follow each other right off cliffs. The first one goes, and all of them go after. Brothers and sisters, we want to be very careful that we are not lemmings. We see our brothers, our sisters wandering towards the cliffs, and we say, whoa, (laughs) pull you back. Tell you the truth. Brothers and sisters, that is our responsibility as Christians. Well, let's look now at our second point, a soul saved. After James tells believers why we are to seek to turn the wanderer from his error, he tells us the result. He says, if you succeed, if you turn the wanderer back, know this. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. Now, this raises two important questions. First of all, how in the world... Are we supposed to go about turning a sinner from the error of his ways? And secondly, what does James mean that admonition and restoration saved souls from death? It's pretty strong language. Well, let's look carefully at these two questions. First, how in the world are we supposed to go about turning a sinner from the error of his way? What does James envision when he says, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death? What is he meaning? What's the process here? Well, first off, we need to understand that any church discipline, whether done by a session or by believers caring spiritually for one another, is done with restoration as its goal. Restoration, that's that's the highlight of any church discipline. Discipline doesn't look like a hammer that stands ready to whack anyone who falls out of line. No, it's much gentler than that. It should look like a biblical, truthful Medicine administered by a loving doctor. When I came here interning in 2018 or so, I rode around a lot with Steve, which meant I got to pick his brain. And Steve's got a lot to pick. Maybe it sounds odd to say that. But anyway, Steve has a lot of wisdom to share. How about that? 
And I asked Steve, I was kind of curious about this church, I asked Steve, so Steve, has there been a lot of church discipline in the church? Any excommunications, any stuff like that? And he's like, well, you got the wrong idea about church discipline. Church discipline is best done preemptively, lovingly, carefully. You sit in the homes of the people in your church and you care for them. You're on the lookout for things that are concerning. You're on the lookout for things that are encouraging. You're encouraging them. And you're caring for them if they seem to be wandering. Brothers and sisters, this fits with Galatians 6, which talks again about church discipline. Galatians 6 says, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Brothers and sisters, church discipline, the the majority, the vast majority of church discipline that you should see should be preemptive. When you fall into sin, your elders should be coming alongside and caring for you. Even better, your fellow believers should be coming to you asking you what is going on and offering biblical truth to counteract the lies of the devil. Now, I kind of jumped the gun a second ago, but I really should, should talk about church discipline here in this, this moment. I should really talk about church discipline, what this means and what it doesn't. Church discipline does not primarily look like judicial proceedings against members of the church. Some equate church discipline with excommunication, or if you're from a non-Presbyterian background, some equate ex, uh, church discipline with shunning or disfellowshipping. And let me be the first to say that is not what church discipline should look like, ideally. Rather, church discipline starts with care and discipleship. This discipleship is church discipline. It's not a painful thing. It's a sweet and reassuring thing that God has put us in a body that cares for one another. Your elders and your pastors should be in your homes or talking to you at church, encouraging you in godliness and admonishing you gently when there is error. If someone comes full force out of the gate and says, I noticed that you were wearing pink on Sunday. How could you? That's not church discipline. That's abuse. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we need godly church discipline where someone says, look, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but, but I, I'm, I'm concerned that perhaps your, your children have been pulling money from the offering bag instead of putting money in. Can we talk about this? Can we work through this? Can we figure out how to, to bring repentance and restoration to these children? I could go into other examples, but I won't, you know. Brothers and sisters, in this discipleship, you are useful to your fellow church members, and they are useful to you. Again, this should be like a family, helping one another, caring for one another spiritually. Like we talked about before, James does not limit this discipleship to just elders or just pastors. This is all of us as believers. It's only when this effort to turn the wanderer back is ignored that there is any sort of rebuke. It is only if the wanderer continues in deliberate unrepentance that the grimmer side of church discipline is pursued. Now we need to make a couple points clear about these grimmer portions of church discipline. There's only one sin that leads to these grim steps of church discipline. And I'm talking about the, the extreme cases where someone 
is brought through a judicial process, through rebuke and censure and excommunication. There's only one sin. And you might say, well, well, great, I only have one sin to look out for. There's only one sin that ever leads to the grimmer side of church discipline. And that sin is the sin of unrepentance. Brothers and sisters, you can be a thief. You can be a murderer. And your church is not going to just go after you. They're going to beseech you. They're going to admonish you. And if you're a murderer, we're probably going to encourage you to give yourself up to the cops. But brothers and sisters, there's a process where we say, God's word says, let him who steals, steal no more. Repent of this. Go and make it right. Restore to the one you stole from. We never jump to the end of the process. We always carefully exhaust every way of trying to turn the person who is wandering back to Christ. Now, if somebody comes to you, maybe it's an elder, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a fellow believer, and they say, hey, I've noticed this sin in your life. The very worst thing you can do is respond with hostility and say, well, I'm not going to play by those rules. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to engage in this. Brothers and sisters, you have been given a chance here to spot sin in our lives, to repent of it and root it out. Maybe there's a false accusation. Somebody comes to you and they say, you know what? You've been running over fences with your car and you say, I don't even have a car. (laughs) That's a great time to clear your name and to say, look, you just leveled a false accusation against me. That's not proper. It's not honoring to God. We need to go and make this right. So brothers and sisters, church discipline is is a wonderful thing that helps us grow as Christians. It helps God be honored. It helps the church to grow in unity and purity. Even more important than this, though, is the ultimate goal of church discipline. That's, of course, the vindication of Christ. But, but under this, as a subheading, is the restoration of our brothers and sisters. We all recited this a moment ago. The purpose of any church discipline, even the grim steps that sometimes need to be taken in cases of unrepentance, the, the The goal of this all is to vindicate the honor of Christ, to promote the purity of his church, and to reclaim the offender. These go together, brothers and sisters. The point of church discipline is not to get people in trouble. The point of church discipline is not to flex the old church government muscles. The point of church discipline is not to remind folks in the pew of how powerful or big the folks on the session are. No, that's wrong. Instead, it is to point to Christ as the holy king of his church and to seek to protect the church and reclaim the wanderer. Now, we also need to ask, what does James mean that admonition and restoration saves souls from death? Now, this is a a bit complex. In a certain sense, it's very complex. In a certain sense, it's very simple. On the one hand, since God's word teaches us that we cannot lose our salvation, this passage may lead some to confusion. They say, how can the soul be saved from death if it was never in danger of being lost? There's that confusion, right? But the answer to this is very simple. God, God can see the heart. And we as human beings cannot see the heart. 
When we see somebody wandering from the truth of the gospel, we don't just shrug and say, eh, if they're elect, it can't hurt them. If they're not elect, nothing I could do. No, no, no. We treat these people who are wandering with concern because as James points out here, sin leads to death. As Paul says, the wages of sin is death. We go immediately with concern to our wandering sibling in Christ and we say, I am concerned. I see you wandering from the truth into error. This type of action or belief does not fit with the Christian profession that you have made. So please listen to my admonition and turn back to the truth. Brothers and sisters, only by the truth of the gospel can the wandering hearts be turned back to God. Well, another wrinkle that is really mind-blowing to consider is that perhaps, just perhaps, this wandering brother or sister was never really wandering in the, uh, walking in the faith. Maybe they had fooled themselves. They thought they were Christians, but they weren't. Maybe they were merely doing what their parents had taught them to do. Maybe they thought that being a Christian just meant being in church on Sunday or Christmas or Easter. Maybe. Maybe they had fooled themselves. And here's the mind-blowing part. Maybe, just maybe, God could use your admonition, your efforts to turn that sinner from error in a saving way for this lost soul. God does this. God uses His people. God uses the preaching and the teaching of His Word. God uses biblical admonition to save lost souls. So brothers and sisters, we don't just throw up our hands and say, eh, it's not our problem. No, we go and we say, look, I don't know what your heart is, but I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about what Jesus did for me and what Jesus did for you. I want to tell you how that impacts your life as a professing Christian. Now we really should be careful that we don't read James and get excited about going out and catching our fellow believers in sin. This type of church discipline is not about pointing out how wrong and off base others are. It's about pointing them to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So we find our brother wandering, our brother or our sister wandering from the truth. And we point them to the truth. That God sent His Son to die for the lost. That God makes dead sinners into living sons. That God calls His sons and daughters to live in obedience and service. Well, at this point, we've thoroughly explored our theme that God calls his people to care spiritually for those wandering into sin. So let's take a moment to to talk about the last phrase of James's book and how this points us to the one who ultimately cares for wandering sinners. James uses this phrase. He says, "Let uh, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This phrase from the this this phrase from James is is really quite familiar biblical ground. This is something that pops up all over scripture. Perhaps you know it from Proverbs 10 verse 12 where the 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 speaker the teacher says hatred stirs up strife but love covers all sins. In that context, Solomon is saying two things. 
First, hatred needlessly dredges up past sin while love forgives and does not seek out conflict. But secondly, and more importantly, love is ultimately what covers over or does away with sin. We see this in the love of God sending Jesus to die for us. That's love that covers over sin. We see this in the love of Christ shedding His divine blood for doomed sinners like you and me. That's love that covers over sin. Love, specifically the love of Christ on the cross, is the only thing that can cover sin. I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking, well, Pastor Elijah said, if I sin, I just need to go and love somebody, and it all kind of equals out. No, 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 I'm not saying that. There is only one love that covers over sin, and that's the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. We see this echoed again, by the way, in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, when Peter says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Christ loved us, and so we are to love one another, forgiving those who sin against us, and loving even those who are difficult to love. But again, ultimately, we are pointed to the unalterable fact that God alone can cover Or forgive sins. Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Brothers and sisters, at the cross of Calvary, Christ shed his blood for sinners like us. He paid the death penalty for our sins. He paid the death penalty so we wouldn't have to. Isn't that mind-blowing? He lived a life of perfect obedience so that we are washed clean and made righteous. I think I've said this before, and again, it's not original. The gospel summed up into four words is Christ in our place. Christ lived for us. By his life, we are made holy before God. And Christ died for us. By his death, our death penalty is wiped out. So when James, the brother of Christ, says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He's not saying that we are responsible for saving a soul from death. He's not saying that we are capable of covering over sins or doing away with the guilt of other sins. No, he is saying that we as Christians are to be used by God Himself, as God covers over our sins and the sins of His people. As God Himself declares us to be holy in His sight. As God Himself declares us righteous because of the blood of Christ shed on the cross. It is Christ who covers over sins. And all we can hope for is to be used by Him in that action of covering. Friends, this reminder is to us. We are to present ourselves to God as his tools. We are to seek to be used by him in the turning back of wanderers, in the saving of souls from death, in the covering over and the washing away of sins, just as God used priests in the Old Testament to cover the mercy seat in the tabernacle with blood for the cleansing of Israel. 
so also Christ shed his blood for the cleansing and covering of our sins and the sins of our fellow believers. When we point the wanderer back to Christ and his sacrificial work, we are being used by God to the glorious end of the salvation of souls. That's a heavy task that you as believers are called to. Well, brothers and sisters, as we finish up this book, and as we move on, as we move forward, or maybe I guess it's move back to the book of Genesis, please take time to ponder what James has done in this letter. In every chapter and in every verse, he has been doing church discipline. He has encouraged the weary, and he has opposed the sinful. He has called professing believers to action and warned the wayward to examine their hearts. James is practicing what he just preached. He's living out his profession of faith and putting arms and legs to the truth of God's word. He doesn't just say, you know, do this. Admonish your brothers and sisters in Christ. Restore your wandering brother. Just do it. No, he's actually doing it himself. He's leading by example in all of this book. So as we move on, please let me ask you to ponder what we've examined in this past year. Ask yourself, are you living out this faith? Ask yourself, am I caring spiritually for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I listening to my brothers and sisters when they come to me and call me to live for Christ? I'd ask you to read this book once more. I know we've spent so much time in it, and I know you're ready to move on. But read this book one more time and examine yourself by what James writes about. See if God is calling you to live for him more fully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for stirring James to write this book. We thank you for inspiring him by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the time that we have had walking along the path that James placed before us. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that he gave. Lord, we thank you for the admonition that he gave. Lord, help us to read this book, to be encouraged by it. Help us to be guided by it. Help us to be humble when we see our sin. Help us to return in repentance. Lord, in this way, help us to see you face to face when we are brought and called by you to heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.